You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Every day we plan and save for our futures, but are you taking into account tax strategies when dealing with your investments? I know, it's not something we think about often enough, but you can find ways to save and invest more and better plan for your future. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today. Whatever your thing is, that's okay. But I want us to stop shrinking ourselves and minimizing ourselves. And I instead want us to expand to ask, what is my rich life? Not my ordinary life, but my rich life. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. If you are a longtime listener of the show, and we know many of you are, thank you for that. You know it is my goal to make money as simple and easy to both understand and manage in your daily lives as possible. And that's why I am such a big fan of to-do lists and step-by-step guides for the stressful life events that hit you every few months, whether we're talking about saving for retirement or investing in the stock market or going through a divorce so that you know exactly what to do with your money. It's also why about a decade ago, I wrote a book called Money Rules, which has a hundred straightforward rules of thumb that you can follow to build a solid, successful financial foundation. But we also know that general money rules don't always work for every person at every stage of life, and they can be different for women. Let me give you an example. The general rule for those emergency funds that we talk about is to have three to six months worth of expenses sucked away and put aside. But we also know women are more likely to take time off from work for caregiving responsibilities. We saw during the pandemic that it was women like us who were more likely to be furloughed or laid off. Research has shown that during the recent bout of layoffs, women were 65% more likely to lose their jobs. And with all of this in mind, if you're thinking you might want a bigger emergency fund, well, I would say I think that makes perfect sense. I always like to say personal finance is more personal than finance. Having a set of rules to follow is a great place to start, but the real challenge is figuring out how do you apply them in your own life? What do you value when it comes to using your hard-earned money? Do you want to expand your family? When do you want to retire? If you want to retire? And what do you want that retirement to look like? Charting out these paths by creating your own personal set of rules, that can be a really good step to living the financial life that you really want. And today, we're diving deep into how you can write your own rules and make sure you stick to them. We're doing it with Ramit Sethi. Ramit is a personal finance expert the author of the New York Times bestselling book, I Will Teach You to Be Rich. He's the host of the podcast By the Same Name, where he focuses on 
coaching real couples through their money problems. And he's got a new Netflix show that I hope you've checked out. It's called How to Get Rich. And he works with people across the country to help them achieve their richest lives. He's got his own top 10 list of money rules to follow. We'll dig into those and unpack them today. Ramit, welcome. Thanks for having me. So congrats on the show. The name of the show, How to Get Rich, kind of implies you're teaching people to increase their wealth. But I know that's not your actual philosophy. It's not about the mansions and the fancy cars. What does rich mean to you? I love that question because when we mostly hear the word rich, it's such a loaded term. We often think about being driven around, chauffeured in the back of a limo and eating only fancy foods. And I have no problem with fancy foods if that's part of your rich life. But I think that a rich life can be traveling for a month or two every year. A rich life can be buying a beautiful cashmere coat. A rich life can be picking up your children from school every afternoon. So your rich life is yours and you define what it is. And to me, the most exciting part of it is that your rich life is totally different than mine. That's the way it should be. And, uh, you know, I think about one of my students. He told me that in his mid to late 30s, he and his wife retired. And they drive around the country in an RV. And that's their rich life. Now, I don't want to get in an RV. It's not my rich life. But I love (laughs) that they created their rich life and they are living it. And that is my goal for everybody listening today. Do you find that when you talk to your listeners and your students They have a hard time at all defining what their rich life is, what the concept means to them, or even if they know it inside, sometimes they have trouble acknowledging it to both themselves and the outside world. Always. Why do you think that is? Well, it's like watching someone paint for the first time. They are obsessed with the technicalities of the brushstroke, and a great art teacher knows that It doesn't have to look perfect. It's really about getting out what's inside already. And over time, you can develop these technical skills. So I often ask people, what is your rich life? And I would say about 90% of the time, I get the same answer. It goes like this. I want to do what I want, when I want. And they almost pause, like I'm going to applaud them. I go, wow, so what do you want to do? And they just stare at me with their mouths open. Now, isn't that amazing that we spend decades of our lives going to work, agonizing over the price of broccoli, saving money valiantly, but we never actually stop to think, what is all of this for? What is my rich life? And, you know, the next thing they give me, I push them on it gently. They'll say words like freedom or travel. What is that? Freedom. That's just a word. What I'm really looking for is something specific like this. I want desperately somebody to say to me, my wife and I, or my husband and I would like to take a three-week trip to Italy. We want to watch the sunset while drinking Italian wine and looking out over the Colosseum. And we want to bring my mom or my dad or our children with us. That's the beginning of designing a beautiful rich life vision. I was speaking to a woman. I'm I'm working on my latest AARP column, and I had a woman write me. She was looking for a financial advisor, and so that's what I'm helping her with. But in the midst of it, we sort of got involved in this conversation of what her rich life, I didn't call it that, but what it looked like. 
And she said, you know, I'd really like to quit this job that I've been doing for 20 years. It's not satisfying me anymore. And I'd like to go work at a baseball stadium. I love baseball. There are 162 games a year. If I could just find a job where I could be in that environment, I would be really happy. And I thought, this woman can do it because she knows what it is. Yeah. It's such a powerful thing that she knows that. And what a beautiful, crystal clear vision. Right now, my wife and I are in New York, and we used to live in New York for a long time, and then recently we moved across the country, but we miss it. And we come back for a month or two at a time. And the first time we came back, we were too busy. We didn't really have as much time to spend with the two of us as we wanted. And so we always talk about what went well, what will we change? And so we decided that next time we come back, we're gonna take Fridays off, and we just walk. We just walk around the city, we go to our favorite places. And so right before this interview, it's a weekday right now, we were walking and we went to have pizza at one of our favorite places. We did a little shopping, walked around, leisurely day, walked in here, and now I get the chance to talk to you about a rich life. And I feel very grateful because I get the opportunity to live my rich life. And it can be as simple as eating pizza on a Thursday. And so what I want to encourage everyone is it can be as simple as that or it can be as extravagant as a luxury two-month trip or a beautiful car. Whatever your thing is, that's okay. But I want us to stop shrinking ourselves and minimizing ourselves. And I instead want us to expand to ask what is my rich life? Not my ordinary life, but my rich life. Sometimes I think people feel like when they share their vision they'll be judged. They'll be judged by people like you and me. They'll be yeah. judged by their friends. They'll be judged by their parents. They'll even be judged by their financial advisors. And so for that reason, they don't share their visions. And I know you well enough to know that your approach is really thoughtful and really caring. And like everything that we do at Her Money, you know, we've put judgment-free in all of our literature, because it's not who we are. What can we do to get people through that? I agree with you, first of all. And I find that the way people are afraid to express their true desires come out in very peculiar and interesting ways. So oftentimes when I'll ask people, what is your rich life? And we go through the preamble. Then they'll say an answer, but they will immediately minimize it. So it goes like this. Well, you know, I'd love to have a beach house one day, but it's not like it has to be a big beach house. It doesn't even have to have four bedrooms. I mean, it doesn't even really have to have a roof. It could be a dilapidated <laughs> shack. I just, I go, what the hell? How did we go from your rich life to a dilapidated shack with no roof? Stop minimizing yourself. So I, you know, I have a little fun with it and they can, you know, we're all laughing, but they get the message that they didn't even realize they were minimizing their dreams. And so I say, let's do it again. And this time, no restrictions. Because trust me, I want to hear about this beautiful beach house. I'm getting excited. So that's one thing I do is to kind of gently point out certain things. Another thing that I do to encourage people is to show people my rich life. So I talked about the pizza, which is very simple, but I also love nice clothes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's interesting, especially for a man, because, you know, men aren't usually talking about nice clothes. And often when I'm speaking to women, 
they, in fact, I just recently had somebody who was interviewing me and I noticed she had this beautiful handbag, just beautiful. Even I could tell it was really nice. I said, wow, that's a really nice bag. And she said, oh, thank you. You know, yeah, I like to spend my money on frivolous. I said, what was that word? She said, frivolous. I said, hold on a second. And we kept going. We were rolling. But I said, yeah. why do you think that it's frivolous to buy a beautiful handbag? And she said, well, you know, I could put in my 401k. Of course, she already maxed out her 401k. I go, do you love the bag? She goes, yeah. I go, can you afford it? She goes, yeah. I go, then what's the problem? Yeah. What do you think? I think this is why we work. I mean, that's what we say in my house. And I'm guilty of the, when I get a compliment, oh, I got it on sale, right? Or I'll, I'll minimize oh. it in some way. I try to catch myself because I do feel like this is why we work, right? I work so that I can spend more than reasonable amounts of money on theater tickets, right? Because I want to sit in the right seats or the seats where I can see. And I don't feel bad about that. I really enjoy it. And I think the rule is, and we're going to get into the rules in just a second, you got to make some choices. You can't value everything. You can't have everything. Yeah. But this is why we work. Yeah. My equivalent phrase that we use in my community is, I want you to spend extravagantly on the things you love as long as you cut costs mercilessly on the things you don't. And theater tickets is a beautiful example. You want to go to the theater? Love it. You want to sit in these amazing seats? Amazing. Great. Now, can you afford it? You got to know your numbers. Can you feel good about it? Hopefully, you know your numbers and you know what makes you happy. Great. And once you have a clear vision of what excites you, then you can start making some choices about, hey, do I really want to be spending on this or that when I could actually get amazing seats for the theater once a month? That's a great discussion to be able to have either alone or with a partner. Yeah, exactly. So let's dig into the rules. I have rules. You have rules. I read a study recently that said that people who actually have rules of their own, set their own sort of self-controlled strategies, spend about $250 a month less than people who follow other people's rules. So I do think it needs to be at least personalized. But let's start to dig into your top 10. And and I know number one is a one-year emergency fund. I sort of started the show talking about the traditional three to six months. Why do you like a year? Okay, first off, let me just start off with a big caveat because people always get mad at me on the internet for my 10 rules because as we're going to see, they become increasingly bewildering and ridiculous. These are my rules for myself and they will make no sense to other people. This first one we can debate, we can apply it generally, but some of them are going to become really crazy in just a second. Okay. Well, I, look, I have the one-year emergency fund. Yeah. In fact, it's probably even a little bit bigger than that because I am conservative and it makes me feel better. That's enough for me that it makes me feel better and it makes me feel safer. And I'm also maxing out my 401k. So it's not getting in the way of other things. Why do you have a one-year emergency fund? I'm conservative as well when it comes to certain areas of personal finance. So I want to have extra cash. I'm already taking care of all my investment targets, all of that. I want to have it because in case something goes wrong, I would prefer not to have to change my lifestyle. I don't want to have to take a step down if possible. And once in a while, opportunistically, there are things that come up that I keep a, a relatively large amount of cash around for. But it makes me feel fine. I know the trade-offs. 
and I'm good with it. Rule number two, save 10%, invest 20%. Where'd those numbers come from? Again, I'm conservative. I know that if I'm doing these things, then I can buy all the dinners out and all the almonds that I want to buy. And And by the way, I don't track any of my spending for like broccolini. I don't care. It's irrelevant to me. I actually find it to be a total waste of time to have to track every last expense at the grocery store. So I know if I'm hitting these numbers, the big ones, 10%, 20%, the rest of it falls into place. I agree with you and it's how I run my own life. But I think that if you've never tracked and you're not hitting those numbers, then tracking is actually the way to get you to those numbers, that you need to know where your money is going in order to hit those big numbers, and then you can budget backwards, which is essentially what you're saying you do. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I think we have slightly different philosophies on that, but I love that. Money is diverse. It should be. And again, my 10% and 20% of gross, those are relatively high numbers. In order to do that, I need to have a pretty high income, et cetera, et cetera. You know, if you're starting out and you can't put aside 10 and 20%, that's okay. Start with five and then adjust it as you can. When you say that one of your rules is to be able to pay in full for large expenses before you spend the money, how large are we talking about? Is is that a house? Yeah. So no debt. Correct. I have a no debt policy. Now we may when we buy a house, we may use debt. We may get a mortgage. I wouldn't be opposed to it, particularly if it was a low interest rate, but I would be able to pay for it in cash. What do you say to people who say, I really want to buy a house and I can't do that? Well, the vast majority of people cannot and will not follow this rule. It's my rule. You shouldn't feel guilty if you have to take out a mortgage to buy a house. That's totally normal and realistic. However, let me point out a couple of things. As I have extensively written about, buying a house is not always the best investment. I've rented for over 15 years. I made more money renting than I would have made owning. And this is in cities including San Francisco, New York, and LA. So you should always run the numbers carefully and you need to become pretty sophisticated. This is the biggest purchase of your life. So you may not have the same policies I do, That's totally fine. What I really want to encourage people is to develop their own rules, just like you said, Gene. But you got to be able to run the numbers and understand things like an amortization schedule and interest rates. These words, most people don't really understand it, but when it's going to cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars, it's worth spending the time to learn it. I completely agree. And I think we're right now at one of those points. Look, it always made sense to run the numbers between renting and owning, but as interest rates have climbed and as rents in some cities have also gone a little haywire, it makes even more sense. And what gets to me is that when people are looking at the cost of buying, they often don't factor in the cost to live there. You're so right. Okay, let's just talk about this for a second because it drives me absolutely insane. I call them phantom costs. When you go to buy a house, there are significant phantom costs. In fact, here's a simple example. Let's say you have an apartment you could rent for $1,600 a month. And let's say you have a house you could buy for $1,600 a month. People go, like 90% of people will go, oh, I should buy the house because I can build equity. What they really forget is that you've got to add 
In my case, I approximated at 50% more to just the mortgage price to account for taxes, maintenance, interest, all kinds of opportunity costs of your down payment. These are phantom costs. So it's not just $1,600 a month. It's not equal. You have to factor in these phantom costs. They're called phantom. They're hidden. Learn the numbers. It's the biggest decision of your life. You've got to know how to do this. Yeah. And don't convince yourself that you're going to want to move in and not change a thing about the place. I have lived in so many places. You're going to want to eventually, eventually change it. I want to ask Ramit a little bit more about some of your rules, but we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Have you taken into account tax strategies when dealing with your investments? I do it with my advisors a couple of times a year. And so I can tell you, The right tax planning can help you save, but the wrong ones, well, they can cost you. Are you saving where you could be and taking advantage of strategies that can help you grow your money for the future? With a little advanced planning, you can find ways to save and invest more and make sure this year is one for the books. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule your complimentary wealth checkup. We are back with Ramit Sethi, host of How to Get Rich on Netflix. So my favorite rule of yours, one is earn enough to work only with people that you respect and like. I think that that is fantastic. Do you have a path for people to get there? I think that if you have a nine to five job, then you can do this. And if you are an entrepreneur, you can do this as well. At a nine to five job, what that means is that you have enough in your personal portfolio, a 401k, an IRA, a taxable account, whatever it looks like, where if you were asked to do something unethical or you were put directly under somebody who did not inspire you or you couldn't respect them, that you would have the financial opportunity to say, you know what, I appreciate it, but I think I'm gonna go a different direction. That freedom, some people, they call it F-U money. I find it a little crass personally because I'm not walking around all day just saying F-U, F-U. But it's the ability to make a decision not primarily based on money because you have enough. My mother called it mad money. I like that a little better. It was the money that her parents sent her out with when she went on a date in high school that if she got mad, she could get in a cab and go home and not be worried that that she wouldn't have enough money to do that. I love that. A lot of your work focuses on couples and couples and money. One of your rules is marry the right person, which clearly you did. But I also know that you and your wife, Cassandra, had trouble talking about your own money early in your relationship. How'd you work through that? And how do you suggest that other couples do the same? I have a lot of compassion when I talk to couples on my podcast, you know, they come on and they share their biggest money disagreements and then they share all of their numbers. You will hear a couple with $800,000 of debt and they're concerned if they can even afford to have children. Then on the other end of the spectrum, I had a young man email me and say, my wife of 21 years is about to divorce me because I'm too cheap. And their net worth was $13 million. So most of us have never heard a couple with $13 million talking about money and why can't we afford this $400 mattress? And you're listening, you go, this is crazy. 
But guess what? I have a lot of compassion because my wife and I had a series of difficult discussions around money. When we met, I violated my own rule. I'm going to admit it, which is, you know, talk about money regularly and early. And we got pretty, I think we were engaged. And my now wife said, this feels uncomfortable because you know everything about my finances, but I don't know anything about yours. So I opened up, you know, my finances. We talked about it. The next difficult conversation was when we discussed a prenup. And I really wanted to talk about this publicly because nobody does. In fact, when I looked online for I advice- do. you Okay, I'm so glad you do. And I have one. Fantastic. Fa oh, I love it. Who was the one who suggested the prenup in your relationship? So I'm married for the second time. We both did. But we both knew coming into the relationship that we had kids. We had responsibilities that the other was not really responsible for and people to protect and, in my case, a business to protect. And so, first of all, it wasn't debated. But second of all, it wasn't a big deal. Yeah, I love that. And as a business owner as well, there's certain concerns. When I brought it up with my wife, I was very nervous. And some of the advice out there as to how to bring it up it's really deceptive. You know, some of the advice said that you should say, hey, my lawyer insists that I do this. I don't want to do it, but I go, you can't even be honest with your life partner. Come on. So, you know, I brought it up and my wife was very receptive. She said, wow, okay, I wasn't expecting that. I don't really know much about a prenup, but I'm willing to learn. Cool. That's the best answer I could have expected. And we had the first few conversations. It went well until it got hard. And we were just seeing it differently. My wife finally suggested that we go see a therapist. And I was like, yeah, we should. So we went to a therapist and I still remember this question she asked us. She said, how do you see money? What does it mean to you? And she looked at me, the therapist, and I was ready to go. I go, growth. In my head, I could see the rule of 72 and compounding. And I, I knew I, I could see all the math. Growth, it's so obvious. Thanks for letting me shine. And then she turns to my wife, Cass, and Cass says, safety. And I looked at her like, what? Safety? That's the, like, I, it's like saying money means metal to me. I just didn't connect it at all. And wow, what an interesting ability to pull that apart. And I know, Gene, you mentioned just a few minutes ago that you like to have that money in your emergency fund. It makes you feel safe. Now I get it. Now I get it. That enabled us to start connecting on the different ways we see money, and that really opened up the door to us, just finding a common ground. It is so female, too. When I wrote my last book, Women With Money, I went around and asked hundreds of women, what do you want from your money? And the answers, while they were all over the map, were all at the start forms of safety and security. Cash in the bank a safe car with airbags and backup cameras and blind spot indicators, a paid off mortgage, not just a mortgage, but right. a paid off mortgage, like all elements of safety described in very, very different ways. And I think it's not a want. I think it's a need for a lot of us. I like that backup camera is really good. That's a great example. You would never immediately connect that to safety, but in the context of everything you just said, it rings so true. You know, when I speak to couples on the podcast, a lot of times there will be one person who's a hyper saver. They love saving. They want to save, save, save. And their partner 
has a different view on money. They go, hey, we have a 28% savings rate. We're going to have X million dollars. Like, when do we get to take our foot off the gas and go on this trip that we've been talking about for 10 years? And I will often find the safety-oriented partner. They have the feeling, the emotion of safety, but they shroud it in a number. And I always say the way you feel about money is highly uncorrelated with how much you've got in the bank. I literally speak to people with $8 million in the bank and they are price comparison shopping for blueberries. They're driving an extra mile for gas to save 10 cents. I go get a life. This is not how a rich life works. I say, look, at what point do you get to stop hyper-saving and actually start living your rich life? Because really is spending 25 minutes comparison shopping for berries part of your rich life? And they go, ha ha, no, it's not. I go, then let's change it. So that's what I find as well. We have this dichotomy when it comes to building and then living your rich life that I think is almost wired into the 401k system in this country, right? We are 40 years in the workforce, maybe 50 years in the workforce, and it's accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. And then we flip a switch and people are supposed to know how to take a chunk of money and make it last as long as they do, which is, again, scary for women because we could live a really long time. How do you balance the question of accumulation with the rich life. Another way of asking it is, what's your definition of enough? Oh, great question. I love talking about this because I, you know, I've been running my business 20 years. A lot of the folks who started with me have accumulated a substantial amount of money. And many of them believed that when they had 50,000 or 500,000 or 2 million, that suddenly they would feel free. And they go, wait a second, I don't feel free. If anything, I feel more scared now. Even when I point out compounding, like you're going to have more money than you could possibly use. That makes them feel even worse because then they tell themselves, I told myself I would feel good by this point and now I don't. I must be a bad person. I go, no, 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 no. Let's stop all this. Let's start fresh. Let's start with a philosophy that I have, which is I want you to live a rich life today and an even richer life tomorrow. This is quite different than the American structure, which is hoard everything, just save, <laughs> save, save. Nobody even tells you how much or why. Save, save, save until someday in the distant future when you know maybe you're 90 years old and it's okay to spend on a sweater. I go, no, that sucks. So we're going to start by living a rich life today and we're going to practice like we're going to the gym for the first time and we're going to start building a muscle. It could be using this simple tactic I call a worry-free number. Like when we were in our 20s, we used to go to the grocery store, we see a pack of gum. We're like, yeah, I'm just going to pick it up. It doesn't matter to me. A dollar, 150, it's not going to, I'm worry-free. The crazy thing is as our net worth accumulates and our income goes up, we don't change our worry-free number. So we'll buy a $1.50 pack of gum, but we'll still worry about a $10 or $12 dessert. Wrong. You've got to adjust your worry-free number up. So with couples, if you're listening, have a conversation with your partner. Say, let's pick a number, the two of us, below which we're simply not going to worry. Mm -hmm. So it could be 20 bucks, could be 200 bucks, could be $2,000, depending on your net worth. Trust me, I do not want to talk to my wife about a $15 purchase. It doesn't make any sense for us, and I trust her and she trusts me. So that's the first part. The second part is we have to remember there's a season of life 
where our money is best spent. And I learned this. If you think about the prime years of spending your money, think 40 to 60. Because before 40, a lot of people don't really have that much money. After 60, as we all know, life happens. We may get ill. We may have to take care of ill parents. Something may happen. Who knows? COVID happened. We saw unexpected life happens. Now, I hope that we're all healthy for a long time. I hope we're all very vibrant. That's what I'm planning. But I also know that there are certain things that I can't do now at 40, like backpacking across Europe, which I did with my college buddy. I don't want to do that. I like a nice hotel. And at 60 <laughs> and at 80 and at 90, there are different things I won't be able to do. So I'm not saying go spend all your money today. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying think about a rich life today and think about a rich life tomorrow and be strategic because there are things you can only do now and it makes sense to prioritize those. And on the other hand, you want to make sure that you've got enough to live comfortably for the very, very long term. We are going to leave it there. Rami, thank you so much. This was really fun for me. It was nice to see you. And where can our listeners find more about you? The show, of course, is on Netflix, but where else would you send them? You can visit my podcast. I would say pick the episode with the title that strikes you the most. The overspender, the underspender, the millionaires, the people in debt. Just start there. And the podcast is called I Will Teach You To Be Rich. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. Before we dive into our mailbag, a quick word from our sponsors. Hey there, listeners. It's Nima Gobier. I'm the co-host of MindShift the podcast where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I don't teach math. I don't teach reading. I teach people. You'll hear from teachers, parents, researchers, and students as we uncover innovative approaches in and out of the classroom. It holds a lot about how we want students and young people to move through the world, how we want to set them up for success. Find MindShift wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back for our mailbag with my daughter, Julia Chatsky. So this is just one of the things that happens when you are recording remotely. We have jackhammers in the backyard today. We got to make sure that we capture this audio. So Jules, although I would love to ask you about your favorite personal money rules, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say, let's grab the silence while we can and dive right into our mailbag. Fair enough. Our first question today comes to us from Kelly. She writes, Hello, I recently got a Roth IRA. I want to invest the money I'm putting in it. I seriously have absolutely no idea how to. I've never invested before, and I don't even know where to begin. I have a Charles Schwab account. I can trip through figuring out their site, but I feel like I'm reading gibberish when trying to read about the options. My husband and I are in the same boat. No one ever taught us about this stuff, and we struggle to understand it in the slightest. I know I want stocks or ETFs, but which ones? How do I find the options? What are the good things to consider now? I'm 38, married, no kids of my own. My husband has a 10-year-old. No debt aside from my house. Intact emergency fund, only about 15K in a 401K, contributing 10% per paycheck. Employer does not match. Thanks for any advice. 
I love this question. And I love it, Kelly, because it's a question that so many people have and far too few people ask. In fact, there's a lot of confusion that I still hear about the fact that the IRA or the Roth IRA itself is not an investment. The The Roth IRA is actually the account and you have to invest the money that you put into it, just like you do with a 401k. But with 401ks, employers have gotten really smart about making it easy. They have, in many cases, default options where if you do nothing, the money goes into a target date retirement fund that invests the way that you should probably be investing based on your age and and your number of years to retirement. And that's how you want to invest the money in this Roth IRA as well. You need to come up with an asset allocation. And an asset allocation is basically just your mix, your mix of investments. And you can keep it incredibly simple. When you think about the percentage of money that you should have in stocks versus the percentage of money that you should have in bonds, take 110 and subtract your age. You're 38 years old, so basically that gets you to 72. 72% of your money should be in stocks or call it an even 70 with the rest in bonds. And then Don't try to pick individual stocks because if you go the individual stock route here, you're going to need to buy 12 to 20 individual stocks at a minimum in order to provide you with diversification, which is what we talk about when we say don't put all your eggs in one basket because if one of those stocks craters, you need other stocks doing well to make sure that your overall return is still fine. You can get instant diversification with ETFs, which are exchange-traded funds or index funds. And both of those are very low-cost, highly diversified assets. I would put that 70-ish percent into a total stock market index fund and the other 30-ish percent into a total bond market index fund, and that's it. That's all I would do. I would then continue to add to those investments over time, every time you get paid or every time you've got a little bit of money, and know that you are are doing the right thing for your financial life. And if you want to learn more about picking individual stocks, I think that's great. If you want to learn more about investing in general, I think that's also great. Give our investing fix class a chance. Karen Feinerman, who is the host of the new How She Does It podcast, and I are teaching investing every other Monday night on Zoom through our Investing Fix class. And you can get more information at investingfix.com. We spell fix with two X's, by the way, and we hope to see you there. Mom, you just told her to buy two investments. Is that enough? It's enough because each of those investments is invested in hundreds, if not thousands of things. And so when we look for diversification, we get it from funds and we get it 
less expensively from index funds and also from ETFs, which are kind of index funds that trade like stocks because they're invested in indexes or in big pools of stocks already. So you don't have to pick and choose your way there. So I did just tell her to buy two investments, but I told her to buy two very broad, very diverse, very low-cost investments. So I'm happy with that. Got it. That makes sense. Thanks for clearing that up. Sure. One more? Yep. Our next question comes from Hannah. She writes, Hi there. We are looking at putting some money in CDs or a high-yield savings account. I have a question on CDs. When the rate is advertised for a certain amount of time, do you have to take your money out at that point? Is the interest rate reevaluated at that point? We are looking for a three to five year CD, but are possibly okay with it being in there longer. But some of the better rates are only for six to 18 months. If I put money in the 18th month one after 18 months, is that interest rate not guaranteed? Thanks in advance. I mean, can I ask a first question? What's a CD? A CD is a certificate of deposit. It's a bank product. So when we had the bank failures that you were hearing about in the news, Julia, all those few months ago, people were concerned about deposits in those banks over $250,000 because they didn't have FDIC insurance. A CD, unlike a mutual fund or a stock or a bond or an IRA or a 401k is a bank product. So it's got that same FDIC insurance so that if the bank gets in trouble up to those limits per depositor, you know that your money is safe. Beyond that, a CD is a contract, basically. It says you put your money in my bank for this amount of time and I will pay you this amount of interest. There are three-month CDs, six-month CDs, one-year CDs. 18-month CDs, three-year, five-year CDs. And generally, the longer you tie your money up with the bank, Mm -hmm. the more they will pay you in interest. Got it. When the time comes for the CD to expire or to come due, then that contract is over and you have to do something else with your money. What many people do is just roll it into a new CD. But based on where interest rates are at that time, you get a different rate of return than you did on the last CD. And so that's what Hannah is seeing here. When that time comes, you take your money out and you do something else with it. So she's looking for a three to five year return on her money, but she's seeing a better rate of return on 18 month CDs. This is unusual. And it's because right now the yield curve, and I know that I'm throwing terminology at you. But you're aware. The yield curve, which is basically a look at if you had a graph You've got time on one side and interest rates on another, and it's a look at what interest rate you get as time progresses. So usually you put money away for three months, you're going to get less than if you put it away for six months, and you're going to get less than 18 months. Right now, the yield curve is inverted. It's upside down because 
people do not have faith that interest rates are going to be higher in the future. And so that's why you're seeing, Hannah, that you're getting a lower rate of return on that three to five year CD and a higher rate of return on that 18 month CD. I would think about the fact that interest rates are higher now than we have seen them in quite some time, and they are likely to start to moderate at some point. So ask yourself, if I put my money away for 18 months and during that time rates come down by a point or two, how am I going to feel about that additional year and a half to three years? Would I be better off just locking in three to five years at this point? Hannah, right now, as I look at interest rates, what I'm seeing is on an 18-month CD, you can get close to 5%, 4.75% on an 18-month CD. Interestingly, you can get higher on a one-year CD. You can get like 5% and change on a one-year CD. When it comes to those three-year CDs, the rate falls from about four and three quarters percent to a little over four and a half percent. And when we look at five-year CDs, the rates are just a smidge lower than that. You can get about four and a half percent. So I would likely lock in that rate for three to five years, knowing that it is likely that interest rates could moderate during that time, and also knowing that you're not going to get a huge bump by taking the risk that you're going to have to make another decision about what to do with your money 18 months down the road. The last thing I should mention is that you want to think about that three to five year time period pretty seriously. If you are fairly sure that you're not going to need the money for close to five years, I would probably put it away for five years. Also knowing that the penalty for breaking a CD early is typically three months of interest. So if rates, for whatever reason, were to shoot sky high, you could potentially break that CD, lose a little bit of interest, but then put your money back to work at a higher rate of interest going forward. Make sense, Jules? Understand what we're talking about? Yeah, totally. Thanks for breaking it down. Of course. And if you have any other money-related questions, we would love to hear from you. Just send them to us by emailing mailbag at hermoney.com. Thanks, Jules, for being here. Hope that the uh, jackhammers don't get too bad. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for bearing with me, everyone. And now we're going to take a quick break. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Dive into the heart of crime with Foul Play Crime Series. 
Immerse yourself in the most perplexing cases where each twist and turn is more baffling than the last. With riveting storytelling and detailed analysis, Foul Play brings the unsolved and unexplained to life, captivating your imagination. Listen to Foul Play Crime Series now, where every story is a puzzle waiting to be solved. We are back with your money tip of the week. On this show, I often talk about how my husband and I manage our money and our yours, mine, and ours accounts. However, the topic of money still makes a lot of couples sweat, especially when our schedules are so busy. Sometimes the conversations we need to have or want to have with our partners about money just continue to fall to the back burner. That's why I like the idea of scheduling some time to talk about money once a month. Some people call it a money date. Call it whatever you want. My husband and I often do this in the car, but you can order takeout, buy a nice bottle of wine, and do something as simple as check out a bank account together or pay off a bill. Setting a date on the calendar and sticking to it will give you and your partner space to prioritize financial goals together. Find more tips on sharing responsibility financially at hermoney.com. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Ramit Sethi for giving us a step-by-step guide to figuring out our own money rules. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. This show is produced by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon. 